Is this okay? Yeah. Good. Hey, uh, Bill, we got to send them the email, the address. Yes. Uh, you know, I think we're gonna we're gonna go live almost exactly on time. I'll let you know because we may be even a few seconds early. Okay. We accept free T-shirts. Okay, we are up on Facebook Live right now. Hey, Lance, how are you? I'm doing well. How about you? That's a nice, neatly trimmed beard you got there. Yeah, well, you know, my wife stays on me, and I try to uh, avoid looking like a wolf man. But I tell you, I, I love not shaving every day. It's awesome. That is awesome. Uh, Mark is supposed to introduce the show. I don't want to step on him, you know. He accuses uh, sorry, I got a he looks very upset about that, I can tell you. <laughs> no, um, uh, we're... Uh, I got a I got a toothache today, so uh, so Bill might do all the uh, I got to warn the audience. Bill might do most of the talking tonight. <laughs> but um, yes, yeah, so we're here, man. Welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. My name is Mark DeMeo. I'm with my co-host in all things law enforcement, the very handsome Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? I'm glad you remembered that I was very handsome last time. You missed that part of it. That's just part of the introduction. Has to be said, or else I I sort of feel bad about that, you know. So. I see you're rocking some chest hair tonight. Oh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. <laughs> Blow it out. <laughs> you know, Mark got to, Mark, as you know, both of us are stand-up comics, but Mark's a much better stand-up comic than me. He's been doing a lot longer. And he hasn't been able to do a live show in a long time because of COVID. And he actually got to do a show last night, so he's so happy today, you know. He's happy that he got to, to I'm in a great show. mood. We, we got another um, Patreon subscriber. So that put That's me right. in a good one too. Right. We 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 put the bull on the former police commissioner Ed Hartnett, former retired NYPD chief, to join our Patreon. He came across with eleven dollars a month to, for the dipped in butter tier. That's our tiers are called. <laughs> we have three funny tiers. One is the bucket. That's the lowest level. You deserve to be a bucket. The second one is polish my rack, as in metals, and the third one is dipped in butter, and that's the most expensive one because. When you dip them in butter, it feels good, you know. Well, you be careful the levels you set. By having me on, you may have to kick the bucket. Level. I don't know. There's no time. You might have to. I didn't know. You know, John J. Wiley didn't tell me you had a good personality. He, he said you were funny. You do. He just said, "Hey, you could yeah. get." He's he's got a low bar in his show. So you know, it's hey, Bill. 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 Introduce our guest so everybody knows who we're talking. Okay. About. We have the privilege today to have Lance Larusso on. He's actually was a police officer for nine years. He worked as a on patrol, training, crime prevention, and public relations. So he has a great background for what he does now, which is he's an attorney. He also was an investigator for two and a half years. So you don't want this guy looking into your shit because he will find out the truth. Lance LaRusso, welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. Thanks for having me. I've been excited about this. It'll be a lot of fun. This I is learned. great, you know. Because we, you know, we usually torture our guests for an hour, an hour and a half. And, you know, after the show's over, they're like, what the hell did I agree to go on that show for, you know? But, you know, your background is so apropos right now for what's going on. Uh, I didn't mention that you represent the Georgia Fraternal uh, Order of Police. And you represent, you've represented cops in over 80 death investigations on duty, uh, deadly use of force. Uh, would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. Actually, we're over 100 officers that I've represented involved in officer-involved shootings or critical incidents uh, in, on in-custody deaths. Um, and, uh, you know, it's something we take very seriously. We do a lot of other stuff, too. We do a lot of uh, catastrophic personal injury cases, track the trailers. But we represent police and fire, 
um, written several books that support police and fire charities. Uh, most recently, we just put out a book, uh, Firefighters in the Hot Seat, about firefighters and OPS or IA investigations. And, you know, we've been representing firefighters for a long time. I had no idea how many uh, internal affairs investigations they wind up going through, but that started out representing a firefighter in a First Amendment case. So, uh, you know, people ask me all the time, you know, it's crazy with all the different stuff you do. It's, I get to represent heroes every day, man. I got the best job in the world. That's fantastic. And obviously you must do a great job because uh, people keep calling on you. And, you know, we, one of the things is when I said so apropos, you can't watch TV or, or go on social media without seeing some allegedly wrong use of force, whether it be deadly use of force or just physical force in regards to police officers. And someone like you is very well trained to, to look at the science of it so that we can give cops the proper due process. Yeah, and, and cops in due process right now. I mean, now that's just crazy talk, Bill. I don't, I don't know where you're getting that. I mean, those words are not supposed to go together. You know, we've gotten to a very strange point in this country. And, you know, I just was talking to somebody today. I did a radio interview. I do a bunch. I've probably done close to 600 media interviews. And people are thirsty for information. I mean, we, did, we get some that want to bash the police, and, and I'm okay with that. You know, I don't have a chain of command. Knock yourself out, but it may not end the way you think it does. I'm not, I'm not answering to anybody else when I get off the radio or the, or the TV. But the bottom line, there is such a misconception about the use of force, what it is, the law surrounding the use of force, the science surrounding it. And, and I'll give you a good example. A few years ago, there was a study done, it was in Michigan, and they showed a picture of a, a must-shoot scenario. So they had one guy pointing a gun at a, at a person and the other guy in a surrender position. They vetted that picture through all these different folks, use of force instructors, and said, okay, now graduate students, because that's who we use for this stuff, right? We use graduate students. So, all right, graduate students, when you see this scenario, here's the law, now you react. So 88% of the time, the people that saw that scenario shot. No question about it, they use deadly force. Right. They use deadly force 88% of the time, even when the person was holding a cordless drill and not a gun. Right, right, right. Now we go to the other side of it. They said, okay, you've gone through this scenario 88% of the time you use deadly force. What percentage of the time would an officer be authorized to use deadly force? And they said 13%. I, I don't know. I, you guys have been cops. I've been carrying a badge of one kind or another since 1987. I was never issued a cape. I don't know what kind of superhero skills cops are supposed to have, but that type of misconception is why the Supreme Court in Graham versus Connor said we judge officers from a reasonable officer standard, not a reasonable person standard. And that is that misconception is so true today. And it's led to police officers' careers being ruined and famously to several officers being murdered in the line of duty, especially your two detectives around Christmas uh, a couple of years ago. Yes. You know, Lance, there was a, um, there's a professor at John Jay. Uh, I don't have a name in front of me right now, but she has a law degree and I get the, uh, I'm a, an alumnus of John Jay. So I get their newsletter and they were having on the 27th, they were having a little seminar with a bunch of professors. And there was one invited guest from the NYPD. And it was about policing and the use of force and that type of thing. And she made the statement that they have to, uh, the law has to interpret what's reasonable for, for an officer to be fearing for his life. How can you legislate fear and what 
makes one per person fearful and makes another person not fearful? How can the law interpret what scares the shit out of you as compared to what scares me? Is, is, is there a reasonable person standard for that? I don't think so. Now, and the other problem you get into with that, if you, the other half of Graham versus Connor is the fact that hindsight is not permissible in that analysis. So it says, we will not judge an officer with hindsight. And there's a very, very small piece of that case that tells you that nine people who study constitutional law all day, who by the way, are protected by police all day, say you can't judge them from the safety of the judge's courtroom. And those so are- because yeah. that's what everyone is judging from the safety of their their armchair armchair quarterback or the safety of a courtroom you're right or the safety of a, a law office you know not the street which is an inherently dangerous place hey lance uh, let me ask you something lance take me through right where is he are you there, are you there? yeah Oh, there you go. Um, <laughs> I, I just was involved in a shooting right now. I'm on the job still. I was just involved in a shooting. Doesn't look good on video. Tell a police officer what he can expect. Okay, we just lawyered up. You came. You came to me. You're my savior. What are you going to? How are you going to guide me right now? Well, the first thing I'll tell you is we were in that situation three times in a five day period in August. So the first thing you got to realize is have you called your family to make sure they know you're okay. And are you okay? Emotionally, physically, psychologically, are you able to even talk to me, much less talk to investigators? The first thing I tell people is use of force, lawful use of force is never gonna look good on video. So don't worry about what the video says. We wanna take a few minutes and get you to a point where you can articulate why you used force where you can articulate what you saw, what you heard, what you learned coming to the scene. And then again, without hindsight, with those blinders on of the moment that you were in, we need to articulate what you saw. And you know, what the last I tell people is don't watch the news. They weren't there. They don't know what happened. Right. It's just going to get you upset. Well, Lance, you know, in New York City, they have this thing called uh, the 48-hour rule. Mm -hmm. And we're a cop. We have 48 hours to speak to no one. But I believe they took that away. But if, if, you're, a sh if you're a shooter and you shot somebody, then the 48-hour rule doesn't really come into effect. Miranda does. <laughs> so, the, no, I'm just saying the yeah. DA's office may not want any police investigators to interview that cop who shot because Miranda is now in effect. Right. And that's, that's, you know, probably one of the biggest misconceptions and it's with a lot of prosecutors and then the general public is the interplay between Miranda and the Garrity warning. So let's take that situation and let's, let's start with a 10,000 foot view of Garrity. So Garrity 1960s case, United States Supreme court is investigating the nexus of your employer's right to do an investigation to route out wrongdoing and the individual's right to avoid incriminating themselves. Now I, that's boiled down, but that case has been just misinterpreted like you would not believe. So when the Supreme Court has said to officers and said to departments, you can make somebody speak even though they have committed something which may be a crime, the, the reason behind that, the rationale behind that was 
there is a vested interest for the public in general to know whether the officer's training was adequate, whether their equipment was adequate, whether the selection process for the department was adequate. Maybe you got the wrong person when you started the, the search for a new position in the police department. Maybe the officer um, had bad information that came from 911. We want the entire scenario studied. The totality so of the get, circumstances, right? Isn't that a law term? I'm sorry? Don't you want the totality of the circumstances? Absolutely. But then on I the learned something at the police academy in 1985. I'm sorry? I said I learned something in the police academy in 1985. Well, I went through in 89. I got my horse in my flintlock just like you did. And I still got both of them. The horse is out back. The, the thing that, that people forget, though, is when you're talking about a criminal investigation, where we get these DAs or we get folks that want the officer interviewed immediately in the criminal investigation, the officer has absolutely no obligation whatsoever to speak to criminal investigators. And we have people that want to change that law. And I have some good relationships with, uh, with journalists. And I, I had a journalist call me the other day and said, hey, there's some prosecutors. We have some prosecutors in Georgia that think Garrity should be abolished. If you pin on a badge, you should be forced to speak to, uh, to criminal investigators. And there's some throughout the United States who are doing that. And they said, what is this law that they want changed to force officers to speak after a shooting? And I said, well, it's the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution. That's exactly what they're saying, because that whole you have a right to remain silent any time you are under potential criminal jeopardy you have the right to remain silent. All of the interviews that officers do in a criminal inquiry are voluntary. And if you force them to speak, then you take the voluntariness away. That's why the Garrity decision said you can't use those statements against someone in a criminal Well, Lance, that, can I just interrupt you for one second? Sure. On the NYPD, they have something called a GO-15 hearing. And that's where internal affairs comes in. And allegedly, whatever they find out they can't use it criminally, just administratively. So it's a really sort of uh, a rocky road there to, to decide what's administrative and what does it become criminal. And at what point is the internal affairs uh, investigator crossing that line and you know asking things he shouldn't be asking? You know, and, oh, and that, I've heard internal affairs uh, officers say, "We'll decide when that happens." No, you won't. The law will decide that. You know, well, and, and, we, and we've looked at this extensively now. All states are different so far as when that that pendulum swings to the administrative. But generally, if it is a compelled administrative interview where the officer doesn't have a choice, they have to answer questions, then Garrity is going to apply. And I have had investigations where, you know, Mark is talking about, you know, you were just involved in a shooting. I have had investigators wanted to ask questions and I've looked at them and said, is this a compelled administrative interview? And if they say yes, then okay, Garrity is gonna apply. If they say no, then we're gonna get up and leave. Yes. Maybe, <laughs> until the officer is ready to speak. Now, this, this is the other part of this, Mark, and this is the side that people don't see. People ask me all the time, okay, so you get to a shooting, you're sitting there talking to an officer. What do you talk about? When the door's closed and nobody can see, what do you talk about? Well. Sometimes I wind up praying with them because you have people whose life has been turned upside down. And I tell officers in the academy, you think of the bad guy you might shoot. Overwhelmingly, gangs are taking over crime in this country. Gangs are the largest employer in the United States. So 
your likelihood of sitting talking to me after you shot a 16-year-old gang member who was trying to kill you are rising exponentially. So a lot of times we're praying because these people are just conflicted. But a lot of times what I'm doing is trying to keep the officer awake. All three of us have been in a knockdown drag out. Where's the off switch on this guy fight? And most of the time it happens over something stupid. Sometimes it's a real bad guy that you knew you were trying to arrest, but I've had it happen over loud, loud noise complaints. Right. Yeah. After that safety is reached, after all that adrenaline is, adrenaline is expended, what do you want to do? You want to go to sleep. When you're safe, all you want to do is crash. That is not the time for an officer to be making a statement to anybody when they, their department, their city, their county, they are going to rely on that statement and face liability based on it. Well, look yeah. at the officer in the, in the Michael Brown case. Everything he said, I think, by the physical evidence turned out to be true. And the whole case turned out to be a lie. There was no hands up, don't shoot. That didn't happen. You know, but yet they still refer to that case as a bad shooting to this day. Well, if it was a bad shooting, I can assure you the the DOJ would have uh, arrested them and the grand jury would have indicted them. You know, and, and it's a, that's a great example because if you gather a hundred people on the street and you ask them how many times Michael Brown was shot in the back, you'll get a number. But if you read the DOJ report, Michael Brown was never shot in the back and was not shot with his hands up. But yet. Instead of, and this is why I wrote the book Blue News, because the Blue News talks about the intersection of law enforcement and media and a basic concept. Tell your own story or someone else will. Imagine where we would be in this country if they had held a press conference for about five or 10 minutes and said, we're not taking any questions. Michael Brown was never shot in the back. Where would we be six or seven years after events like that when now we're carrying a false narrative that has led officers to get killed. Yes. We know that the officers in Dallas were targeted because of the rhetoric. And, and it's really interesting. I was talking to somebody today about, um, you know, the role of officers and, and what they do and how much they value their community. I said, if you want proof of how much they value their community, law enforcement officers that were murdered in Dallas were providing security for an anti-law enforcement rally. And when the shots rang out, they're the ones that were covering people with their bodies and pulling them out of line of fire. That exact, that's exactly shows you what law enforcement in this country is made of and why they deserve our respect. You know, Lance, it's disturbing to all of us. How did it get to the point where law enforcement has become the scapegoat for every problem in this nation? Some of these cities have had the same politicians have run it and run it into the ground for 50, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, they should be blamed, not the police officers that work these cities, but yet with these demonstrations, the officers aren't even allowed to do their job, but yet they're the, they're the government's representative, they're the punching bag out there. But they better be there if the city starts to burn. Yeah. Hey, Lance, um, can we go back to that room for a second? Sure. Uh, I, you mentioned that, um, I forget how you put it now, but just the information that gets out there, right? If you would just uh, make that statement from the beginning, you have an officer sitting there and uh, he wants to tell his side of the story. This is, you know, everything that's going on in the news um, is a lie, let's just suppose. And um, he wants to tell you the side of the story. 
What do you tell this guy? Well, we have to get that side of the story out somehow. And I'll tell you what the stakes are now, Mark. The stakes are, as we're seeing, if you don't get it out, the officer's career is over. The officer's life may be in jeopardy and the city may burn. Because, because the, the runaway train that goes with, with a little bit of knowledge or what you're seeing in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where the first video was taken from across the street, was taken from across the street and there's no way you can see what the officer saw that fired. And even the governor was trying to condemn the officer within minutes of the shooting. The agency, the officer, the representative, they have to do something to get the story out. I've actually put out press releases after an officer involved shooting to let the public know what actually happened. And I think that's more important than ever. And, you know, people have accused me of grandstanding. Let me tell you, all the profits from When Cops Kill, which is about officer involved shootings, um, Peacemaking, which is about a cop's walk with Christ and Blue News, all the profits from those books go to law enforcement charities. To date, we've donated over $30,000. I'm trying to make sure that people understand what really happens and protect our law enforcement because we're losing them at, a, at an alarming rate. And that 20 year mark where they can stay for another five or 10 years, they're leaving the profession and on the way out, they're telling their family members, their neighbors, don't go into this profession. We're gonna be at a real crisis in about five years if we don't turn this around. Well, but Lance, going back to the question is, how did we get here? Sure, I, I think that you're right about politicians, you know, heaping stuff on law enforcement. and. You know, if you take a time management class about being an entrepreneur, if you're, you're going to run a business, one of the first things they tell you is learn how to say no. Law enforcement doesn't say no. You got a problem in your community, we'll send someone to a school to learn how to do it. Wait, wait, wait. You got a problem with, with poverty that's causing kids to go into gangs, we'll start the D.A.R.E. program. We'll do whatever you want us to do. And I was talking to someone the other day about uh, one of these uh, goofy ideas about defunding the police and putting it to other people to handle mental health calls. And I said, let me explain something to you. If you were to tell law enforcement that they never have to respond to another mental health call, they're good with that. Yeah, you know but that. Two things about it. Number one is stop calling them. And number two, there's a reason they're going because nobody else is. And the other problem is, Millions of times a year, they handle those calls admirably without any force being used. But when we have a couple of situations that everybody wants to, as you said, armchair quarterback, that leads to the, the problems. But there's something else that, that's even more important in our society, Bill. And I've noticed for probably, probably as long as I've been practicing law, I'm sure it was going on beforehand. We've reached a point in this country where you can't disagree. Right. If you disagree with somebody, you got to hate them. You know, now look, I don't like your position, so, so I hate you. I mean, it was an outgrowth of the political correctness movement in the 90s, and it has gotten to a point where the amount of venom, and I've experienced it at my office, people, people literally making threats because they don't like the officers that I represent. But right. when you're going to hate someone because you disagree with them, you're the problem. You are definitely not the solution. Amen. Absolutely. You know, so the, on LinkedIn, I suggested to a group of Californians, so they must have been to the left of center uh, politically. I suggested that homelessness was a problem of mental illness, alcoholism, and um, well, mental illness, alcoholism, and drug addiction. And I got attacked like I suggested something that was so outrageous, you know? <laughs> 
How could you suggest that? No, of well, course, it's a problem of not enough homes. You know? Yeah, but let's let's start out with a, a basic premise. You know, what does a retired NYPD homicide detective know about homelessness? Right. I know. You never dealt with anybody who was homeless with murder. You never dealt with anybody on the street who was homeless, who was a witness that you tried to get benefits for and tried to get into shelters. And, and you know, I work in a, in a warm climate. I'm not gonna begin, begin to think about how many times NYPD officers get people into shelters for one reason, so they don't die on the street. I never understood what is compassionate to defend someone's right to live on the street when they have addiction issues and they have mental health issues. But again, who's doing it? Who's, who's helping them? Remember the, uh, the NYPD officer a couple of years ago who found a guy that didn't have any shoes in the winter and he went and bought him a pair of boots out of his right. own pocket? That's more like what a cop is all about. And that's, they do that's, it every day. That's the cops I have met in my life, not you know the ones that the media tries to portray as bloodthirsty you know, killers. You know? Hey, uh, hey, Lance, it seems to me like before this recent what we're going through right now, if a, there was a police officer involved in the shooting, um, there was due process. And now all of a sudden they're in jail like the next day. How, I don't know how that happens. And what, what, where do these, these officers go in the meantime? Like what? I don't understand uh, until you've been tried. How are they in jail? Well, this has actually been going on for a while. So let's, let's back up a little bit because we, the, you have this cry for the officer to be fired immediately. Just put the, put the prosecution aside for a second. And I was explaining to a few folks on some interviews, the dumbest thing you can do if you, have a, if you believe that you have a cultural problem or a training problem in an agency, the dumbest thing you can do is fire an officer immediately because you lose the ability to interview them under Garrity to find out if there's a problem. This whole idea of prosecuting officers immediately has been done in the past to try to appease the masses, to try to quell the violence, to try to you know, keep the groundswell of anger going. And here's a clue, it never works. You're right. It's never going to work and it's gonna backfire. So after about, um, I guess, after 2015, 2016, I really started watching a pattern. And what you have is an officer involved shooting takes place. And then you have speculation as to the reason and you have witnesses and I'll use that in quotes that come to speak and they'll, they'll be the face in the media. And then you have the investigation. Now you have two options after a shooting. You can have already use of force. You can have a thorough investigation. You can have quick answers. That's it. You know, you're investigating a homicide and you are trying to find out why the person overpowered the officer and why the officer felt like deadly force was the only option you're not gonna have a tox screen done to see what that person had in their system for six to eight weeks. You want quick answers or you want a thorough investigation? Right. So then the thorough investigation's done and all these people who were wrong have a choice. They can use the words, I was wrong, which some people would rather pull their eye teeth out with a pair of pliers that admit that. Or they can say, well, the system's gotta get changed because I saw the video, it looks terrible. It's always gonna look terrible. There's nothing that's going to look good about hitting somebody with an ass baton, even if it's 100% justified. Well, look at just in the case with um, Floyd. Um, now the toxology report comes out, like you said, and uh, he had an enormous amount of phenylalanine in him. And uh, on top of that, once again, 
another gentleman with uh, really, really poor health. So let's say for argument's sake, this stuff comes up in the court and in a court setting sways the jury. How can, how can any other outcome come or who would even let that happen? Because the fear, just the basic fear of that, the, you know, what's going to happen in the streets? You're doomed. I, and we, we've seen that in several different situations. Take it out of the police context. Look what happened when OJ was acquitted. I was thinking the same exact thing. That had nothing to do with law enforcement. And, and look what happened when the officers were acquitted in the uh, Rodney King trial. Well, one right. of the problems was they charged them with aggravated assault. And a jury did not believe it was aggravated assault. A, a federal jury believed they were violating his constitutional rights. But, you, you know, when you go into those situations with a bad premise, and, and I'll tell you what's happening with the George Floyd thing. I have no inside knowledge of that. But watching all of this, the concern in any homicide case, when you charge somebody yeah. with murder, you have to prove as the prosecutor that something they did or an omission on their part caused the death. That causal factor has got to be present or you don't, not only don't have a murder conviction, you don't have a murder charge. You may have a situation where something occurred, but if you can't prove that caused the person's death, you're gonna have a problem. Now, when we go to that situation, and I read the reports of the fentanyl and I've heard the fentanyl as being a toxic dose. I've heard it being a bad dose. I've heard that there were other drugs involved and I haven't seen the autopsy results or seen the toxicology results. But I've defended doctors and hospitals for about 18 years. And I remember a long time ago when I was defending a case, I had an anesthesiologist tell me, because uh, we were talking about the diversion of drugs. I was working with the National Association of Drug Diversion Investigators and doing some lectures for them. And I said, uh, on the state level, and he said, you know, all these diverted drugs are scary. But if fentanyl ever gets into the public, people are going to die. It, it wasn't even a close call. It wasn't going to it's going to be bad. When fentanyl gets into the public, people are going to die. And we're seeing that. So let's say you take that case to court, Mark, and the defense experts come up and the, the prosecution's experts get cross-examined that and have to admit that if that was a, a fatal dose of fentanyl, as a homicide, you've got a problem. And that's and what's that's going to when those officers get acquitted. He's right. He's already been convicted in the mind of the public, in the mind of the media. He's already been convicted. I mean, look, it looked bad. Someone's having their knee on someone's neck for eight and a half minutes or whatever it was. And like what you're talking about, the video never looks good. But it, this looked. Uh, that, was, that video, like Bill says, was something that um, everybody was. Uh, I, I never I never heard one officer say that they disagreed with uh that he was wrong, that, that that was wrong, that it shouldn't have happened that way. Eight and a half minutes. I didn't hear one officer jump to the, the other officer's defense, and that was the first time that's ever happened as far as I know. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because actually I was asked, I was on court TV and a few other shows, and they asked me, I said, can a person's knee, can an officer's knee end up on someone's neck during a physical confrontation? The answer is absolutely. It can happen as defensive tactics instructors, as, as trainers in the police academy during full speed role plays, it can happen, but you move your knee. My problem was that it stayed there. And, right. and Mark, you brought up an excellent point that I was talking about before. Everybody in law enforcement that I know came out and condemned that action and it didn't matter. 
because there is an agenda with a group of people where they are trying to push an agenda to abolish police departments and defund police. And to give you an idea how stupid that is, and you guys may not be able to call it stupid, I've called it stupid and naive and ignorant. The only two things discretionary in a police budget are training and travel, which is usually for training. So we're gonna put Bill back in the beat, okay? So Bill's a homicide detective. He finds out there's an awesome class on blood spatter evidence. I just spoke at the National Forensic Academy and he wants to go to that class. He's got to travel from New York to Knoxville and he's got to go to that class at the University of Tennessee. If you cut police funding, the money for that class is not there. Right. So what we're going to do is we're going to push officers to the least amount of training possible to make sure they maintain their certifications. So the people who are complaining they want more law enforcement training are gonna end up with less. And the reason they're gonna get the result they don't want is they don't know what they're talking about. They didn't know what they were talking about with a lot of things. If you remember 13 years ago, there was a move in Georgia to ban tasers because tasers were gonna electrocute people. Now, everybody listening to your show <laughs> has licked a nine volt battery. <laughs> Everybody's done. If you have an older brother, you've that's done how it. Mark, that's how Mark gets his kicks. He looks like you know, whatever you got to do to wake up, you know. But the bottom line is a nine volt battery powers a taser. It's never going to electrocute anybody. So right. let's go forward 13 years. An officer gets into a shooting. And what's the first thing they want to know? Why didn't they use a taser? Right. Well, you idiots wanted to take it away 13 years ago. Maybe you should shut your pie hole because you don't know what you're talking about. Exactly. You know, the Floyd case also uh, led to the New York City Council, in conjunction with this jackass we have as a mayor, passing what's known as the diaphragm law, which is the most ridiculous law a group of moronic politicians could ever come up with, that when an officer makes an arrest, if he puts his knee in the back of the arrestee, that, that could be a misdemeanor. The officer could be arrested and charged with a misdemeanor. As a result, police officers in New York City are afraid to make arrests now because you can't cuff a guy without rolling around, you know, if he resists, without rolling around with him on the ground. And now you're, you're the perp. I thought the guy who was resting was the perp. Well, you know? and I've seen, I've seen the training video. And I'll, and I'll tell you, whoever wrote that training video and that idea doesn't understand anything about basic human leverage. Forget, forget policing. They don't understand what Archimedes was talking about with leverage. But, but go back a second. You can arrest someone without putting them on their stomach and putting their knee in their back. And if you go watch MMA shows, you can get somebody to submit. You can watch Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and you can put somebody on their back and you can wrap them up and submit them without putting them on their stomach. And I can assure you that looks far worse on video <laughs> than putting somebody on their back, locking them down in an arm bar and putting your knee between their shoulder blades to handcuff them. You know what's interesting, Lance? You brought up uh, this move to defund the police. And another scam that's going on right now, I read about, um, I've, I don't know what's, what state it is or what city in that state, but they decided to go ahead and defund the police. And now they're asking for help from the state troopers. So basically what they want is they want to un unburden themselves. They probably see these troopers sitting around, you know, what they think is doing nothing or just on the highway. And why not let the, pet, the feds pay for our police? Well, the state, yeah, the state. Yeah. Yeah, so this is really funny. Along those lines, um, this is why you're having a mutual aid problem in a lot of jurisdictions. I've never seen, like I said, I, I started out in, in 1987, went to the police academy in 89, 
I've never seen a refusal to help on a mutual aid request. Now, you know, I'm a chief. I don't like Bill. He wants help with his parade. Okay, that, that's just personalities. But I'm talking about a bona fide, I need help, and agencies saying no. And we saw that in Atlanta. We saw a bunch of agencies that refused to come to Atlanta to assist. We saw in the Democratic National Convention, I think it was 100 agencies pulled out of the, uh, the Memorandum of Understanding and the MOU to, uh, to come in and assist. And we've now seen this move to say, okay, well, you can come in and assist in our city that's out of control, but you can't use chemical irritants. Well, what's a chemical irritant? Is that tear gas? Is that OC? Is that pepper balls? Is that some of these stench producing weapons that just make people disperse? And again, it's born of it and kind of getting back to your idea, Bill, where did, how did we get here? Because there is this desire among a lot of people to control something. And we've all heard this. Well, we have to do something. Well, no, you don't. You don't do something stupid. And what we see is what we can control, we're going to control the police. And I'll give you an example. I've said for years that if you really want to watch gun control in its ultimate role, wait until people start trying to take guns away from law enforcement officers. Somebody said, oh, it'll never happen. I've spoken to the Canadian Police Association, eight countries that were up there in that lecture. It was a lot of fun. And by the way, cops are cops. When you get them into the hospitality room, cops are really cops. They're <laughs> cops all over the place. That's for sure. But the bottom line is we are now seeing this, this movement to take firearms away from police. And it's an absolute crazy idea that we are going to limit the force options to officers. We're going to take, think about this. I'm going to put you in to fight with somebody twice your size, and I want your taser, and I want your OC. We're going back to the 1970s when all you had on your on your belt was a gun, handcuffs, and a baton. Right. Well, also, too, um, going back to that state police thing, um, the federal government now, like, uh, let's just say, because they're, they're going to defund the police, right? Let's just say that the, the, the federal government wants to do this reform around, uh, throughout the country, uh, reform, reform policing bill, right? Right. Part of that bill is going to be maintaining a certain amount of police officers and then hiring more. And who's going to fund that also? The federal government. In, in a way, they're going to give money towards that. And we've so, seen that with cop grants. In the Clinton administration, we had a lot of officers that were hired. The name of the programs got out of my head. But Safe so Street, Safe of, City, was that the one? I'm sorry? Safe Streets, Safe City. Yes, Safe Streets. Yeah. So we had the federal government paying, and, and this is funny, Mark, I didn't interrupt you, but it, it, they were paying for people to go to the police academy. That's what I did. But they, but they weren't dumb. They knew they couldn't fund it forever. So it, there was a sunset on that. They said, okay, we'll, we, we think you need more officers so we're going to pay for them for five years. Hey, listen, I was hanging out in a corner like this. Look, and somebody goes, hey, man, they're hiring cops right now. Come on. I said, what? I said, yeah, man, come on. They'll, get you, they'll put you right on the job. I was like, all right, let's go. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. That's not what happened. But I came on in the safe street, safe city, you know, and uh, that's, that's exactly what's happening again. It's just coming around again. They're looking, they figured out a way to get the, the federal government to pay for their police departments. So that I, might I, be think, the, I think it's more than that. I think there's a lot of radicals out there. Uh, John Jay College, where I have my, got my master's degree from, 
They used to be a criminal justice school. Now it's like this radical leftist school with all these people with, you know, these correctional ideas like let's empty the jails and the prisons and they need to be in the community. People love that word community. Let's put them back with their families. Their families don't want them either because all they ever do is get locked up and do drugs and beat the shit out of them. So let's not act like, you know, they're like, oh, put them back in the community. You know, let's give the money to the community. That word community is out of control, you know? Let's take the money away from the jails and the prisons and give it to the community, you know? That's all they say is the word community. Well, you know, inherent living in a community is not preying on your neighbors. Right. We actually saw that in some cities where they're actually paying people to not commit crimes. But, you know, and it's really interesting. You talk about the community. I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, how come I can go to Walmart with a mask, but you got to let somebody out of prison to keep them safe? Yeah. And, and by the way, how come I can go to Walmart with a mask, but I can't go to the polls to vote in person? But that, that may be a whole other podcast. I don't know. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, one of the things we'd like to touch upon is I see you're also a, a firearms instructor for over 25 years. And you know the, the whole science of uh, ballistics, obviously. Well, that would be a whole show. But you also mentioned about uh, lessons on the use of force on one of your things. And you talk about how law enforcement makes 12 to 13 million arrests each year. That's over 33,000 custodial arrests each day. And the overwhelming majority occur without any use of force whatsoever. Right. And when a lot of a lot of force that's used is used against officers. So the, the the studies are as high as one third of law enforcement officers are assaulted every year. So when you're looking at those 12 to 13 million arrests, officers shoot and kill just under a thousand people every year. Now, here's a shot. Mark's going to fall out of his chair. You ready? That number has not gone up in the past 10 years. It always there. There it goes. It always fell. Yeah, it always, and see a lawyer knocked you out of your chair. That's got to be some cause of action. But it's you know it's just under a thousand. Now when we go back and break those situations down, um, the New York Post started doing a little bit of an in-depth analysis. And when they started breaking these things down in 2015, they said 986 off, uh, 986 people were shot and killed by police. Okay, that's that's about the the average, right about where we are. And they said four percent were unarmed. Now, first of all, unarmed does not mean not dangerous, but in the statistics, and this is where I said there's an underlying thing, as Bill was saying, where, how did we get here? In the statistics of an unarmed person that's shot and killed by police, unarmed means no gun. Okay. So in some of those situations, the people were armed with a knife. One guy was armed with a shovel or a rake, I forget which one. If you swing your average farm implement at me, I will shoot you. Yes, absolutely. I will shoot you and put till you put it down. You know, Lance, so what if the person that you're you're physically have the encounter with is stronger than you? He potentially could be armed very quickly by taking your gun from you. So that whole that's a, that's a whole narrative that the press pushes. He killed an unarmed. No, he was armed after he took the officer's gun because if. A perp takes a gun from an officer, he's going to use it 80 to 90% of the time. Right. And we also know that officers have been shot and killed with their own guns throughout history multiple, multiple times. I'm trying to adjust some light in here. His sun's going down. I'm trying to use natural light. Um, but, you know, when, you're, when you're sitting here looking at the analysis of those situations, there's so much that goes into it. So there's another study that was done in, I think it was 2007 or 2009, by a guy named Chris Mohandy, who was a 
former um, LAPD psychologist, and he looked at 700 police shootings from 90 jurisdictions. So what happens when I look at 90 jurisdictions, the, the, it's, you take the policies and procedures and basically what's called norm reference them. They don't really matter anymore because there's not much of a difference between them. And when they looked at those shootings, 8% of those calls were dispatched as suicide calls, 8%. But when they went into those shootings and looked at the backgrounds and found out that somebody was, they lost their job, they, uh, they, they lost their kids in a custody dispute, they were about to get divorced, they were served with, um, with uh, papers that they were gonna have to admit they had a gambling debt, whatever it happened to be. When you look at it, they said 36% of those shootings were actually suicide by cop. And if 50% of those times, the person had never verbalized a threat of suicide. Now, I want you to think for a second. You're, you're a homicide investigator, and you're, you're investigating a case where somebody has been shot and killed by the police. You go talk to the family, and the family says, well, they never said anything about suicide. Now you're going to try to reconstruct and tell them it was suicide by cop? And basically, the officer presented the opportunity that the person never took past. So I want to translate that to our current, current argument about de-escalation. They were teaching de-escalation when I went through the police academy in 1989. There's nothing new about it. We called it some different things. But de-escalation is an outcome. It's not a tactic. So when you're talking about de-escalating a situation, it requires the cooperation of two people, the officer and the person they're dealing with. The officer has to take some actions to try to defuse the situation, and the person has to defuse the situation. But when you have a situation that we're seeing now, and Mark, as you were saying, when they're pressing the contact, when they're forcing the encounter with the officer, when instead of complying with commands, they're attacking the officer. And as you said, Bill, they're trying to take the officer's gun. That's the opposite of de-escalation. They are escalating these situations and in that situation, you will guarantee that some level of force is used. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what you're talking right now is science, and especially when it comes to the numbers. And science is an interesting word right now because we're going through the COVID, the pandemic. And if you're not, if you're an anti-mask person or whatever, you have you're getting hollered at constantly uh, about the science of it, the science of it, and yet. George Floyd brought all of uh, 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 that incident brought upon all this craziness and nobody is interested in science. They'll never look at the numbers. Right. They just want to, um, obviously for me, I, you know, I have a whole conspiracy theory. I think it's much bigger than the police. I think they're just pawns in the middle of this. It's about turning the government you know, to flipping the government, um, making it socialist, getting rid of this uh, capitalism. Um, well, if we're not qualified in these areas. Let's yeah, I'm going to turn a light on. Hang on a second. <laughs> You're trying to turn this into a political show. <laughs> no, I just, not, people are going to think I'm in a, I'm a bad horror movie. Um, you know, the bottom line, you you are right that there that there is some ulterior motives here, but I, I have to tell you, I, I disagree. I think they do care about the science. They're afraid of it. So let's look at an they, officer. They won't they won't bring it up. They won't look at it. Absolutely interested in it. So how come you're interested in science when it comes to COVID and keeping everybody locked down, even though we have no idea if those numbers are real? But we know the police shooting numbers are real. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you something else about it, too. There's a group called Force Science at forsescience.org. Um, they've been studying force encounters for about 30 years. They're, 
They've been in 27 peer-reviewed journals. That means they did their research and they handed it over to an editorial board where other groups of scientists looked at their method, looked at their, their measurement, looked, checked their math, and then checked their conclusions. So when you other people with similar backgrounds or more experience have decided hey, that Lance, when, you, when you freeze up like that and you're doing law work, do you cut the price? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you, does your hourly fee go down? <laughs> so it, it's, it's funny when you look at... I couldn't resist. No, that's fine. Actually, I wish, you know, my hair went missing. I wish it went gray. I'd make more money. I could increase my rates if I had gray hair. Your billable hours go down if you freeze up on the, on the Zoom. Oh, yeah. So, the, you know, the funny thing about the, uh, the, those studies, when they did them, they learned a lot of things. And as you said, Mark, they don't want to hear about the science, but let's talk about some of the science. I teach a class called How to Defend Officers Using Science. So we have a guy that's shot in the back. A person can turn 90 degrees in 0.3 seconds. A person can turn 180 degrees in 0.6 seconds. So you have an officer with a gun at a 45 degree angle, ready to raise that gun and fire. One shot takes 0.83 seconds. So when the time the officer sees a person raise a gun and raises his gun and fires, the subject he's shooting at can turn 180 degrees and get shot in the back. That's, that's math. That's not spin, that's math. Right. Yeah, I just, uh, it's scary to think what's going to happen just uh, like sacrificial lambs in a way to these officers that are going to be, uh, you know, give it out and just take them, take them to those families because they took a job. Because well, it's a I, That's what I tell people. If you don't like law enforcement now, if you don't like the well-trained officers we have now, wait until you see the second strength. Yeah. When we're hiring the guys who are token on the street corner and go, hey, we got to fill a body uh, on a beat. Can you fog a mirror? We'll give you a gun and let you work. Exactly. You know, Lance, you spoke, you also speak about body cameras and uh, how a body camera doesn't accurately portray what the officer sees from his eyes. It never will. Sure. So uh, everybody that's listening to this has rented a hotel room or a bed and breakfast and gotten there and opened the door and put your luggage down. You look at your, your spouse and go, this room was supposed to be a lot bigger. It looked a lot bigger on the internet. Well, they took a picture of it with a fisheye lens. Right. Every body camera uses a fisheye lens. Now that's not a bad thing. It uses a fisheye lens to capture more going out this way than it can. And obviously the bigger that angle, the better the body camera or the more you pay for it. But where do we mount body cameras? We mount them in the middle of the chest and we can mount them on the shoulders. The body camera will never give you the officer's view. Let's go back to Kenosha a second. Those officers didn't have body cameras. By the way, they were budgeted and, and talked about, and then they weren't funded for seven years. Like that's the officer's fault, Mark, right? Right, right? So the body camera, if it was sitting on the officer's chest, it might not show you what the officer saw 25 or 30 inches higher. In addition, body cameras have no peripheral vision they don't, they see differently in low light and no light than the officer does. But there's a very critical part with body cameras. If an officer sees a gun, if an officer sees a threat, if an officer is watching someone's hands, like we're taught to do, because hands kill, right? That's a basic principle of teaching people how to be cops. 
if the officer sees a threat, their primitive brain, their amygdala will focus on that threat to the exclusion of everything else. The body camera doesn't. The body camera just keeps filming. So you have a situation where the officer says, I saw it is in slow motion. I saw the camera. I saw the, the gun coming up. I could see the edge of the barrel. It wasn't pointed at me yet, but I knew where it was going and I fired. And then you look on the camera and you can't even see the gun because let's say in a traffic stop, it's sunny outside and you're looking inside the car. The, the shutter on that camera, the iris on that camera is open because it's in the sun, yet it has to be closed like your eye did to focus on something inside. So now we look at the video and we say, getting back to your point about legislating what's reasonable, what did the officer see? Well, the camera saw it. Well, that's not what the standard is and it can't be the standard. We have to base it on what the officer reasonably believed at the time. Now, if you look at Graham versus Connor and you look at Garner versus Tennessee and Scott versus Harris, all of those cases start with a premise of the reasonable officer standard. And it's a standard in over 40 states. There's a basic underlying fact of a reasonable officer standard that, as you said, Mark, people are not ready to absorb yet and they're, they're fighting against. You can have a reasonable belief and be 100% wrong. Hey, uh, Lance, let me ask you a question. Um, and I'm serious about this. Do you represent retired police officers? Yes. Could I have your number? <laughs> sure. <laughs> we've, we've actually had officers who've used deadly force that were retired or off duty. And you're really good. I said, you're really, really good. Let me ask you a question, though. Um, don't you think that the. But here it comes. You ready, Bill? You're really good. Now watch. <laughs> no, no. He wants some free billable hours. That's what he's doing. <laughs> don't, don't you think the body cams have, have helped the police officers more than hurt them, though? Oh, they've absolutely helped them, as long as you understand the limitations of what you're looking at. So, so I'm going to give you an example. I, I'm not a big football fan, but let's say you take a, a camera and you stick it on the chest of a quarterback. And you hear the signal and the ball gets snapped. You're going to see the snap. You're going to see him grab the ball. You're going to see him throw the ball, and in the middle of that, you're going to see a guy that looks like a Buick with legs trying to rip his head off, right? But you're not going to see who he threw the ball to. You're not going to see if the person caught the ball, and if he didn't catch the ball, whether it was a bad pass or whether the person just fumbled it. That's basically what happens with body cameras, but people think we've lived, people have grown up in a world of cameras and television. People think what they're going to see is what we see from drones and what we see from cameras running back and forth on a wire over an NFL game. What we generally see, I've got a video that I show in the classes that I teach. I've got a video I show of, a, of an officer involved shooting. And after it's done, I click the pause button. I said, someone tell me what happened. You don't have a clue what happened. Well, you know, you brought this up and this is pretty interesting. Why doesn't the police departments across the country invent uh, vest in drones? And send every time the call comes out, send a drone over there and let it fly over the head. This way you get a, you get a bird's eye view of what's actually happening. Because the perps will shoot them down. <laughs> well, let that happen too. But I'm just saying, you know, uh, with, with the body cameras, they work great. They, I, I've seen it, you know, help a lot of incidents. Like you said, they're, they're better off than not having them. But 
you know, you want to, you want to, you want to get a, you want that bird's eye view. Why not? It's technology. It's out there. People are flying drones. You see an NYPD drone, they might shoot them out of the air, but it still might get the footage. Yeah, but so you're you're off, like Lance was saying before, here's all this technology at an NFL football game. They have the camera on the wire. There's cameras all over the place, and they can't make the fucking call. They it's can't. The angle. How many? Say, but, oh, you know. They can't, they can't reverse the call. So, well, And I'm going to take it a step further, Bill, because when they do slow it down, when they do lose slow, use slow motion, when they have three refs off the field looking at the camera and make a call, what does the crowd do? They right. get mad. Yeah, yeah but think about this, too. Think We're about going to go to New York and see if the guy who's sitting on the couch in New York... Wait, wait, give me a second here. Watch this. Supposing you send the drone there ahead of time <laughs> so the cops could look on the phone and see what the freaking drone is seeing before they get there. So, so here's it. First of all, there are people experimenting with drones for that. There's actually people experimenting having a drone right on the top of a police car and hover over the officer. Oh, there's sure. people that are talking about drones, and there's an FAA rule that they have to get around because you have to have line of sight. There's an actual experiment with drones being dispatched from 911 centers and being able to fly around a place within five miles, a 911 call or a domestic violence call, so they can actually see what's going on before they get there. I'm not crazy. But, well, you may be crazy, but not about this. So this is something, Mark, I'm going to give you an example of why it doesn't work. Betty Shelby. So Betty Shelby, Tulsa, Oklahoma, she gets into a shooting, and we didn't have a drone, we had a helicopter, so it's flying a whole lot higher up. Okay, so I'm teasing you a little bit, but this is flying a whole lot higher up. We had people trying to indict Betty Shelby, and she actually was indicted and tried for murder. She was acquitted. But we had people trying to indict Betty Shelby with the view from the helicopter. So I was doing a bunch of interviews about this. And I said, hey, by the way, did you guys see her jump from the ground into the helicopter to see what they saw and then come back down? They said, that's ridiculous. I said, just about as ridiculous as you trying to indict her with a view she never could have had. Now, Betty Shelby is the only person I know to be able to live out of state because she was facing so many death threats while she was awaiting trial, she was acquitted. Now, a couple of really interesting things about that. First is her defense cost over $400,000. She was an FOP member of the Legal Defense Plan. She paid her dues that year, and that's all she paid for her defense. The second thing about that, she, you know, she said that she believed he was on PCP. And this kind of gets to what we're talking about, where the public misunderstands. So the, the trial's going on. I get interviewed, and they said, well, how would she know she's, that the guy was on PCP? I said, she's a DRE. And the next question came, these are people researching the case. What's a DRE? Well, it's a drug recognition expert. She's taught to look for different drugs. So <laughs> the guy gets, she gets acquitted. The guy's proven to have been on PCP. And the critics of the acquittal said she shouldn't have been allowed to rely on her belief he was on PCP because she didn't have the tax screen. It's like, does that sound really good inside your head? Because from out here, it sounds kind of stupid. Yeah. You know what? Go, let's go back to the helicopters now. Isn't it interesting that in all these riots everywhere around the country right now, I haven't seen one footage from a helicopter? <laughs> Have you? You know, I, I don't know. I've seen a bunch of footage, but I don't know if they're drones or helicopters. Well, I agree. I'm just saying from above, we use the helicopters for everything, for speeders, for uh, car chases, the uh, cha following perps through alleys and through gardens and through, 
they haven't used, they're not allowed to use their helicopters for these riots. I haven't seen one helicopter with footage showing what's going on down there and how they're moving around. Well, Lance, I think what that is, is that New York City, we have uh, 100% ability to break these riots up an hour after they happen, except the political wherewithal to do that isn't there because the mayor wants a soft touch. So he, he wants the cops to get the shit out of them and not the people that are rioting. You know, they never used horses. They never used drones. They never used helicopters. All the toys that they have, they didn't use because he wanted a soft touch. You know, when I was a kid, I remember uh, the Yankees, uh, when they won the uh, World Series, there was a rumor people were going to storm the field. And I still, I was, a, I was a little kid. And I remember the New York Mounted Police just literally stood on the lines and everybody stayed in the stands. It was amazing. It's like, yeah. oh. You know, it's kind of like when I was, I was actually working an officer involved shooting and I came back to the precinct and I knew a lot of the people and, and, you know, I said, Hey, where's the chief? I wanted to talk to him. He said, well, he's out. They got a, a hostage situation. I'm like, God, this guy can't get a break today. One of his officers shoots somebody and he's got a hostage situation. So uh, I said later, what happened with the hostage situation? Say, well, they drove a bear cat up over the curb and almost up the stairs to the guy's house and knocked on the door with the uh, with the post. And he looked down, and this is a guy who's been threatening to kill everybody. And he kind of looked out there, well, I didn't know you're gonna send the guys with the helmets, I'm, I'm coming out. And and it's really funny because we look at the helicopter, we, we look at the mounted police, we look at all these different ways to quell these riots. And it's all seen of the, you know, the distortion, the, the, the taking over of this term de-escalation. Those are de-escalation techniques. Right. We all practice them. When I started policing, you know, we had areas we would patrol where our backup was 10, 12 minutes away. We were very rural at the time. And when I would look at someone and say, you know, someone says, well, you know, I'm going to whip your butt. I'm not going to jail. Well, you might whip my butt. You're not going to whip the whole precinct's butt. And they're going to be here in two minutes. Well, you know what? I lied to them. That's called de-escalation. Right. Now, if an officer said that, he's creating a threat. I got to tell you a funny story about NYPD. This is hilarious. So I'm up in New York City uh, right around Christmas time, and I come around the corner. Now, keep in mind, my department had 350 officers when I started. That's like a shift for y'all. 350 officers, and uh, you know, when, now I think it's up to about 600. So I come around the corner, and it was right on, we were on Fifth Avenue, going to look at the, uh, the decorations, and apparently there was some sort of a protest going on. I forget what it was about now. I turned the corner. I've never seen so many cops in my entire life. So I walked up and I badged one of them. I said, look, I said, all I need, you don't have to tell me why you're here. Is it okay for my wife and I to be here? If we need to leave, we're not going to argue. We're just going to turn around and leave. And they said, no, you're okay. And I forget what they called it, whether it was a bureau call out, whatever it was. Um, I've never seen so many cops in my life. But here's the funny thing. I wasn't scared. I wasn't worried about it. You know, they're the good guys. Well, remember, you know, remember the Orlando nightclub shooting yeah. where the guy killed all those people? There were people that were pissed that they used that explosive device to end the thing. They were like, oh, they're militarizing the police. This guy just killed 50-something people, and you're worried about how the police responded to it. It's like nuts. Yeah, it's like in Dallas when they blew the guy up who was shooting at them, and I had a reporter on the phone. I remember I was sitting in my kitchen. I was doing a couple of interviews, and this guy said, well, why'd they blow him up? So I said, well, look. If they had the ability to shoot them, 
with a sniper from across the street, they would have. And it turns out later that the guy was actually, when he was blown up, he was actually exchanging rounds from what I understand with officers. I said, so, you know, they, it, deadly force is deadly force. If they hit him with a car, if they shot him, it's all deadly force. And he actually said to me, well, it's a waste of resources. I mean, they blew up the bomb robot. And all I could say was, I think we're done here. <laughs> so, so going down the road a few years later, I'm in a class and I'm teaching and I told that story and a guy from Dallas PD, I think he was on attack unit that was there, said, I just want you to know we replaced the arm on the robot and he was okay. I said, well, yeah. I appreciate that. that. That gives me a little warm fuzzy. But just this, go back to journalism school, you know? You yeah, know this, this intervention of nonsensical statements that pass for analysis is amazing. You know, there's no way you guys could hold this show and invite a guy on who's a forensic accountant and is doing a, uh, an audit for a city and say, well, we don't think you did that right. You know what he'd say? Well, what are you basing that on? Are you an accountant? No, I'm not an accountant. I was a street cop, but I don't think you're doing it right. People would laugh you off the air. Plus, if he was a forensic accountant, all your audience would probably fall asleep. But all, all due respect to forensic accountants. I don't do math in front of people. So, You know, when you, when you couldn't get on the, um, on the field after the Yankee game, the reason why was because uh, I remember it because I'm probably older than you, 1976. I think it was Chris, right. Chambliss. Chris Chambliss hit a walk-off home run in a playoff game. Um, and he couldn't get the home plate. All the fans jumped on the field. I think it happened to Reggie Jackson, too. So it was a couple of years of that where, uh, you know, the fans jumped on the field and it got crazy where they started bringing the horses out. But it does make a difference. And they take away all the weapons that make a difference. And they want you to just be out there and basically take a beating on behalf of um, the screwed of up the government. Community, of the community. Yes, the community. But, but you know, it's even, it's even worse than that, Mark. So let's go back to when cops, and, and I have real good friends who have been policing for 40 and 50 years, and they, they laugh. You know, they see all this stuff we have on our bat utility belts. <laughs> you know, let's go back to when all you had was a gun and handcuffs and a baton. Who changed that? Who said we need better tools? Who said we need better ways to deal with deadly force? A bunch of politicians? No, a bunch of cops. Yeah. It was a bunch of cops who learned better ways to handle things and took it upon themselves to find a better way, to find a taser, to find an OC, to find a way to use the least amount of force necessary. And now we're not only bashing those people, we're trying to go backwards all in the name of tolerance. Yeah, but we also had flak jacks back then. Uh, <laughs> it was a, like a, a piece of lead that you put in your palm. Yeah, when you told somebody to take a walk and they didn't take a walk, you just whacked them in the head. <laughs> Next thing you know, they're spouting blood. The fuck, take a fucking walk. Did you hear me? That was that was pre cameras, Mark. I got one of those coming out of the academy. I was like, what is this thing? Oh, this is nice. How's it those? I I heard about them, but uh, you know, and that's that's you know the other thing you you hear about some of these techniques, um, you know, and I'll, I'll give you an example. One of our uh, defensive tactics instructors, he's very very good with the sands, very very strong. They had a guy at a, at a domestic dispute that wanted to fight. Knew he was going to jail, beat up his wife. He wanted to fight. They're like, dude, you want? You don't want to fight. It's just three of us here. What are you going to do? No, I want to fight. All right. So everybody moved back. And instead of, you know, fighting with the guy, he just used his own leverage. And every time he came by, he slapped him and pushed him on the ground and said, stop fighting. Now, he could have jumped on, but they were worried at the time. There was a lot of positional asphyxia being worked on, and they didn't want three people to jump on and after he slapped him a couple of times, he said, dude, you're under arrest. 
All you're doing is making this worse. Finally, the guy said, okay, well, that was pain compliance. He got slapped in the face. He said, you know, I don't want any more of that. Yeah, but some guys like getting punched in the face. Yeah, you know, they're, they're in a different, I'm, I'm a wuss. You hit me in the face, I scream like a school Yeah, but I'm telling you, some guys love it. I, I had a friend when I was growing up, man. He was always starting fights in the bars. He couldn't fight a lick. And uh, he was always getting beat up. And he had a wise ass, you know, he had a wise ass attitude. And one day it dawned on me. He says, you know what? The guy likes to drink and he likes to get punched in his face, man. Leave him alone. Well, if we had more people like him, we'd have less people like him. That's, that's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, Lance, one of the things we wanted to talk about a little bit too is non-lethal devices. Because Mark had the great experience last week of being wrapped with bowler wrap. Yeah, you know, uh, that the, the wire they shoot at you. Oh, yeah, consenting adults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, you're not yeah, consenting One about. of the best things I learned is they have to scream three times, bola, 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 before they fire it. And Mark volunteered to be the crash test dummy. And after it was over, he was like, that hurt. <laughs> <laughs> that hurt a little bit. <laughs> I, I've seen those things, you know, and, and I can tell you, right now, if you yelled bola, bola, bola three times, somebody think you say Ebola, they probably, you know, but you know what? When they shoot it, it sounds like a gunshot. That's why. They oh, I'm sure it does. The taser sounds like a gunshot too. Yeah. Wait, so, Mark, what was it like? Um, it got your attention, and it sounds like a gunshot, and uh, you feel the, the, the how quick it wraps around you, and then you can't really get out of it. You know, uh, if they get your arms, there's no way to pull it off, and if they get your legs, uh. You know, trying to, if you move, it, they dig in deeper. They're like little fish hooks. So it's not, it's not a lot of pain, but uh, it's, you know, I have a very low threshold for pain, by the way. <laughs> it was yeah, fun watching. It was like, uh, mind, this is the guy that started out today saying he went to the dentist today. So I'm surprised you're even, you're no, even tomorrow I'm going. Oh, to tomorrow. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I'll give up government secrets without, without hesitation. <laughs> <laughs> tell the guys right up front. I said, "Listen, there's no need for any of this. What do you need to know? Let's go." Now, if this is gonna hurt, I'm good. Just let me know what you want to know. Well, what do you what do you think of the bowler wrap? You know, I've seen some videos with it. My, my initial skepticism was, you know, what happens if a person is moving? Because I've never seen someone stand there and get shot with anything, right. uh, except you know, except with a taser deployment. I can tell you, I'm a, I've been a taser instructor for a long time, but. That my taser deployment was for training. The next time someone hits me with a taser, when I get up, someone's toting an ass weapon. That's all I'm going to tell you. Training is Have one. Have you ever been shot with a taser? I'm sorry? Have you been shot with a oh, taser? Oh, yeah. It's not a fun experience. No, it, it is quite unpleasant. Uh, yeah. As what I tell people is, you know, if you've ever hit your funny bone. Now, I don't mean, ow, I hit my funny bone. I mean, when you're jumping up and down and creating new curse words that weren't created while playing golf, okay, <laughs> you are jumping 15 feet off the ground. That's what it feels from the top of your head all the way to the bottom of your feet. Wow. But it's five seconds. And, you know, in the five seconds, people ask me what I did and they want me to release my video. It's like, no, I'm not releasing my video. I didn't scream like a fool girl. That was my goal. But the bottom line is after the taser deployment, I got up and finished my lunch. I was taking the class. I had to go do something. I came back. I was eating my lunch. I said, you haven't done a deployment yet. I was like, well, let's get it over with. I did the deployment. I, I sat down and I did my lunch. I, I even offered them. I was an attorney at the time. I even offered. I said, hey, if you guys want to raffle off and raise some money for the FOP, you know, see who gets to shoot a cop with a taser. I'm good. That's fine. Doesn't matter to me who does it. <laughs> That's it good. Didn't take me the, actor, the actor Sean Penn was shot with a taser once. And uh, 
I think he got acted up again after that several months later. He was like, no, no, not again. Not that thing again. <laughs> I don't want any more of that. That's right. He had enough. So the, the taser is pretty effective, though, right? Yeah, it is. You know, the problem with the taser and, and it, with anything, and you asked about the bolo, anything that somebody can do to reduce the amount of force that officers have to use, hey, I'm in favor of it, especially if you recognize that less lethal still has a chance of lethality. So somebody's running, you lock up their feet. Now that's great if you lock up their feet and then you have to wrestle them. How many, you know, how many people have we seen we're trying to arrest them and get kicked in the face? And it usually takes a rookie about three times to realize, keep your face away from the person's legs so you don't get hit. Right. And the FTO is screaming at them, move your face because we know that happens. So if you can lock up their legs, that's great. But you know, just like you can't tase somebody from an elevated position, if somebody's running full speed, and you, you use that bolo wrap and you wrap up their legs, as long as you understand there's going to be an injury, that person's not going to stand up when they go from you know full speed run like Wiley Coyote and hitting the ground, they're gonna get scuffed up. They're gonna have marks on their face. This kind of gets back to what I said, use of force is never gonna look good on video. Right. I don't care what you call it. I don't care what you do with it. It's never gonna look good on video. But, you know, the Monday morning quarterbacks always question even the use of non-lethal devices because, look, cops have tried to use uh, tasers on people with a knife. That's probably not the time really to use a taser, you know. Because, <laughs> oh, yeah, I mean, because if it doesn't work, you're fucked, you know. And uh, there was a, a video very recently about a cop that tried to use a taser on a guy with a knife. He got like, stabbed like three or four times. Well, there's also agencies that I know that if an officer doesn't have lethal cover and in the face of a knife, they draw a taser, they suspend them. They just suspend them and they put them back through training. And a, a few years ago, there was a guy, it was a, wait, 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 it was a what, U.S. Marshal. I'm sorry? What did you say? That if an officer doesn't have lethal cover and tries to use a taser in the face of a subject armed with a knife, they suspend them and put them through retraining because it's not an appropriate response. So there was, it might've been a U.S. Marshal, it might've been a court security officer in federal court. A guy you. came up with a, a shank, he was on the witness stand and you, you'll see it, you can probably find the video still. And the court security officer shot him and killed him. And there were people showing that on Facebook and saying, why did he have to shoot him? And I said, take a second and think, how many steps is he from the judge? How many steps is he from jurors, both of whom are probably unprepared to defend themselves. Forget the prosecutors who are probably unprepared to defend themselves. A taser, when you have one court security officer and you have an edged weapon, a taser is not an appropriate response. No. That's and, you know, why didn't he shoot that shiv out of his hand? Yeah, why exactly. Shoot him in the foot. <laughs> Those are the other genius comments we hear, right? Yeah, and well, this is the other thing, the, the anatomy experts. Well, shoot him in the leg, not in the chest, because you shoot people in the leg, there's no arteries or anything in your leg. You, you, you know, probably just like in the movies, you know, they take a bandana and they tie it around their leg and then they limp around for the rest of the movie. No, nobody ever get, dies from a shot, get shot in the leg. That never happened. No, there's, there's like a, the aorta is running through the leg. <laughs> yes. The femoral artery, yeah, that's, I've seen people shot there. And they, yeah, it's they, about as, uh, what, about as thick as your, it's about as thick as your pinky. And if you don't put a tourniquet on it, you're never going to see the ambulance. I actually know a, a cop that lost a, a leg because of that. He got hit, he got hit in, in Queens. The, the, the bullet ricocheted off the ground, 
bounced up and hit him in the in the 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 aorta on the on the leg, and they couldn't save it. They tried. They helicoptered him out, and they couldn't save him. It's a, it's if, if it hit his femoral artery, he's lucky it saved his life. I'm glad he's still with us. Was saved, but uh, he lost the leg. They they they, they try to keep it in. Eventually, the blood just wasn't circulating enough. But um, yeah, so uh, Lance, do you want to mention the? You've written five books, right? Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so, when cops kill is about uh, officer-involved shootings, and I wrote it for the public, for family uh, of officers, for officers, for journalists, and it basically covers when the smoke clears. What happens after an officer-involved shootings? What type? Of, what type of investigation is done? Uh, the criminal investigation, the administrative investigation, the grand jury inquiry, the civil lawsuits, and then what's it like to live with having taken a life? So for instance, we've had officers uh, that I interviewed for that who uh, one guy shot and killed someone who shot and killed two police officers. And 15 years later, it took him, you know, he had to stop three times because he was so emotional. He said his goal was to go 24 hours without thinking of the man he killed. And 15 years later, I hadn't done it. Wow. So peacemaking, as I mentioned, is about a cop's walk with Christ. And it really comes from a lot of these conversations I've had with officers who were brought up in very, uh, very religious houses um, and with a lot of good, strong, moral backgrounds. And then one day to save the life of a third person, they kill. And the moral dilemmas they go through and how it changes their lives forever. Um, another book I wrote and we talked about a little bit was Blue News. Uh, Blue News is about the intersection of law enforcement and media. And I interviewed a guy with 40 years in the news industry and also the man who was in charge of all of the um, law enforcement forces in Ferguson. For instance, one of the things he was talking about was CNN was rumored to have 78 full-time employees on the ground in Ferguson. Ferguson has 21,000 residents. It is not a huge city. It's a very small city. So, you know, how does law enforcement tell their story? How do they get their story out? How do you run a press conference? How do you run a, uh, a social media campaign? Another book we put out, we talked rec about recently, was the firefighter book, Firefighters in the Hot Seat, telling firefighters how to navigate through um, an OPS investigation. And, and I can tell you, I've represented a lot of firefighters. I think that, uh, you know, and, and I went through a smokehouse, some of the most demanding stuff I've ever done physically is absolutely tremendous. The bravest thing I've ever done as a at a fire is make sure people didn't drive over the hoses while they were inside the fire. But, <laughs> What's OPS? You know, I'm sorry? What's OPS? Oh, uh, Officer Professional Standards or Internal Affairs. Okay. So they get a lot of investigations like that. And I think it comes from living together. You know, you get personality conflicts. And, and I, I worked with some great people policing. And I've asked people all the time, did you work with great people policing? Yeah. Were they your brothers and sisters? Yes. Do you want to live with them? Hell no, I don't want to live with them. Right. So I think that's sometimes what happens. And then I also put out a book called Parallax, and that's actually coming out soon in an audio book. And that's five short stories. They're, they're fiction, but they're based on some things about real law enforcement, um, you know, some of the, the real fear. And a lot of people don't realize that cops get scared. I've been so scared, I thought my knees were going to bend backwards. And um, all the profits from the firefighter book go to firefighter charities, Peacemaking, When Cops Kill, and Blue News support law enforcement charities. And in January, I put out my first novel, Bill. I'm very proud of this. It's called Hunting of Men. It's available at huntingofmen.com. And it's about a real homicide, uh, you know, the realistic homicide perspective of how crimes are actually solved. You know, I had, a, it's about a guy named Johnny Till. Uh, he's a very brand new homicide detective, very young to be in that unit. 
and he picks out a cold case and it turns out to be the cold case murder of a police officer. And when I say that, both of your body languages change because all three of us have been in agencies where an officer has been murdered. Just imagine that case going to a cold case and what that would do. So in the course of solving it, he winds up um, investigating a sex trafficking ring as well. Um, and you know, I wrote about sex trafficking because it is one of these scourges on our society. And everybody's screaming and hollering about you know, civil rights. What about the civil rights of some of these young girls who are being trafficked? So in uh, Johnny Till's, Johnny Till winds up solving the book, but we learn a lot about him. And I had a reporter recently ask me about uh, hunting of men. And they said, are you Johnny Till? <laughs> and I said, no, Johnny Till's smarter than me and much better looking. I said, but you know, if, if you want a book about the homicide detective who's an alcoholic, has seven ex-wives and hates the chief, this is not your book. Right. If you want to know what cops are really like, how funny they are, how different they are. I worked with a guy who used to go home and do oil paintings of, of landscapes. That was the way he calmed down. I worked with cops who would deal with domestic disputes all day long and then go coach Little League when they were half asleep after a morning watch. You I want to learn what cops are really like, then Hunting of Men is a good book for you. Did you and use the Ernest Hemingway quote? I'm sorry? Did you use the Ernest Hemingway yes. quote? Yes. I do it. Do it. <laughs> Absolutely. There is no hunting like the hunting of men. Very good. That's right. Because yeah. I, 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 I saw the title. I said, he must have used the Ernest Hemingway quote. You know, you'd be surprised how many cops, especially homicide detectives, know that quote. I've had a lot of people bring that up. Well, I was in the Warren squad, and this guy McCabe used to have it on his desk. I always thought that was interesting. Yeah. Where, can, where can we find your books? So the books are available on Amazon. They're also available at LanceLaRussoBooks.com, and it's L-A-N-C-E-L-O-R-U-S-S-O-Books.com. And Hunting of Men, you can always get from HuntingofMen.com. Short way to get to me is just type in BlueLineLawyer.com. So wait a minute. The Hunting of Men, um, just for Bill's sake, that's that's not about going to gay bars, right? <laughs> If it is, it's a different version. I don't know. Maybe that was so unnecessary, man. That, that's not the Bill. That's not the book that you read. <laughs> I was hitting him pretty hard, so I'll take it. I got to take one of the two. The book that you read was different, Bill. This <laughs> was the, the hunting of men's. <laughs> Lance John J. Wiley recommended you as a guest, and I, I have to thank you. You are an interesting, interesting guy really smart man and uh it's a pleasure really to have met you and uh i learned a lot today, man you, you really I, I think jay is great and and, and i want to i want to say something to your audience too you know right now cops are getting beaten ahead and all i can say is you know we're all familiar with the with the bible verse matthew 5 9 blessed are the peacemakers so they should be called the children of god i'm going to tell you something blessed are the peacemakers and thank god every night that they're there i don't know why sometimes they're there but I, people ask what they can do to change things. Bill, you asked, how did we get here? I'll tell you what you can do to change things. Everybody listening to this needs to tell five people that when you go out tomorrow, you find somebody in uniform and you thank them. I don't care if you buy them lunch. I don't care if you buy them dinner. Just walk up and say, hey, I don't know if you're having a good day or not, but man, I'm, I'm thankful that you're out here. And because we need them. And without them, I don't know where we'd be. If you want to know where we'd be without him, I had a, a reporter say, what happened if we really defunded the police? I said, imagine Portland 24 hours a day, but instead of in the downtowns, people would be in neighborhoods. Yeah, that could happen. Thank you for what you guys did too. Yeah. 
Yeah. Hey, um, just so you know, Mark, the Mayo's a stage name. If you get a call at like 3 a.m. and <laughs> the, uh, the, they're telling you it's Mayo Sanchez, that's me. Say, so you're breaking up. You're breaking <laughs> well, I can't hear you. That's me. I need, I need your help immediately. Yeah, all those calls at three in the morning is why the phone's on my side of the bed. It moved from my wife's. So I got a call at 20 to three one morning, and the next night I went to bed and the phone was on my side of the bed. I looked, okay, I get the message. Literally, all I got was, it's for you. She didn't even ask who it was. Whoever's calling at this time of night's got to be calling for you. That's she, doesn't want, she doesn't want those middle of the night calls anymore. Yeah, uh, they're crazy. Well, I got a great crew. I got two other lawyers that work with me. One of them uh, was a valedictorian of his law school class, 29 years in the sheriff's office, commander of an IA unit. And another guy went to law school on a full ride, former cop. I'm, I'm fortunate to work with some unbelievable people. That's fantastic, man. You know something? It's great to know that there are people in law enforcement that go into law. You know, we Joe Murray, who watches this, um, this show all the time, he was a police officer. Now he's a great attorney. Uh, it's great to have formal law enforcement that they get their law degrees and they practice law because uh, it's so important. You don't, no one else has the perspective uh, that you have or another uh, a retired or someone that's been a law enforcement officer and then goes into the other side, you know, practicing law, defense work. It's, it's, you know, it's, and I'll tell you, Bill, you talk about that perspective. Sometimes it's not knowing how to defend Mark when he gets into something. Mark brought something up that really kind of hit home. It's knowing what to say when, when you get there and somebody's just taken a life. It's knowing to call them 30 days after and say, look, I know you're getting beat up in the media. I told you not to watch and I'm sure you're watching. Hey, I know you can't go to the grocery store because your family's getting harassed. I know your kids are getting told their daddy's a murderer. You know, I, I know what you're going through. And uh, you know, that where is where I think it separates the line that, that when, you've, when you've been in the badge and you've been in those boots, um, you know how it turns things upside down. Well, Lance, I just wanted to say thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you so much for doing what you're doing. I would, I couldn't imagine feeling any more comfortable that it, God forbid something happened to me and you showed up. You know, that means a lot. That really does. I appreciate that. And uh, Bill, do you want to mention yeah, anything? Wanna, about the uh, I'll thank Lance in a moment, but I, Mark and I have to pay the bills, all right? And some of you cops have the first few of your fucking communion money. You know, or your confirmation money. We're on a site called patreon.com slash police off the cuff. We have three tiers. The first one is called the bucket. That's for your real cheap bucks. That's seven bucks. The second one is polish my rack. That's nine bucks. And the, the premier one is dipped in butter. And that costs 11 bucks. So you want to see some law enforcement stuff that we don't give to oh, all. Bill, didn't you just put up, um, you just, you're just, uh, you're doing the true crime. Yeah, I'm doing episodes on true crime episodes. We, we don't give that to our uh, everyday fans out there. We give it to the Patreon fans. I'm, I'm interviewing some tremendous New York City detectives that have cases that have never been told before. And our Patreon fans will get that. So part with 11 bucks a month, all right? And be one of our Patreon fans. And I have, uh, I have an episode with uh, a retired uh, Passaic County Sheriff, um, great, 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 great guy. I love him to death. His name is Andrew Singer. Um, he had a child with meningitis, and he tells us the story of uh, what happened with his career and uh, where they are now. It's a real powerful, moving story that's exclusive to Patreon, and I'm going to be doing stories like that every week. Um, I'll have another one next week. And um, any parting words, Lance? 
you know, you guys are telling their stories. And as I said, if you don't tell your story, somebody else will. And, and I'm honored to come up on here. I know we had a lot of fun and everything, but I, I, I'll be, I'd be happy to come on anytime. I think you guys are doing some fantastic work and you're speaking out for those officers that can't speak out for themselves. So God bless what you're doing. Hey, you know, man. It was hey, so Lance, Lance let, let Bill know when you come out with, uh, what was the book again? <laughs> Hunting of Men. Hunting of Men Part 2. Bill is really <laughs> on the edge. He's waiting. He's <laughs> uh, you know something? Cops are some of the funniest fuckers in this world, is the truth, right? I have laughed more in a police car than anybody could imagine. All truth. right. Thank you so much, Lance. God bless you. Thanks, y'all. Have a great week. Work. Good night, uh, everyone. Thanks again. Catch you guys again Thursday. Thursday night, right, Bill? Yep. We'll see you Thursday night. Thanks, Lance. Thanks. Bye-bye.